She had uh, three babies. They looked Nubian, but they weren't that big. So it worked out. And normally speaking, especially with a first pregnancy, it takes a while and a lot of straining and everything else, as some of you know. But uh, she had all three within 15 minutes, and everybody's doing fine. So uh, one of those little things that kind of made our week. I don't know what made yours, but uh, I hope something did. We do have this coming Monday evening at 7.30, a New Moon Bible study, 7.30 Monday evening. I'm going to tentatively entitle this, Finding Righteousness and the Peace of God. Finding Righteousness and the Peace of God. You know, in our world today, peace is something that everybody talks about and wishes for and are cynical about and do not expect really to happen because there are so many warring peoples and so on across the face of the earth and so many issues of human nature that disturb the peace. And yet, in a sense, it's strange that if you disturb the peace in our society in some form or fashion, it's a minor misdemeanor. Uh, They might fine you a little bit for disturbing the peace. Now, there may be more serious issues there uh, in regards to what may have disturbed the peace, but if they can't make any other charge stick, something more serious, then you simply get the slap on the wrist for having disturbed the peace. So in our society today, that particular charge is not a big deal. And yet, I think it is a major consideration. There was peace in the kingdom of God. There was no trouble, no dissension, no division, no problem. And then one who had been a cherub who covered the throne of God disturbed the peace. And the disturbance of the peace came in such a way that proliferated until it brought on war in heaven, war in the kingdom of God, and one-third of the angels crashed down, not only spiritually speaking, but even back to this earth where they have essentially been since, notwithstanding some being bound back when Christ spoke to them, as Peter referred to, and a binding in the future. And they have to work under certain constraints. Satan is allowed to go before the throne of God and accuse us regularly, which is a continuance of disturbing the peace. God seeks peace between he and his people. And yet we have the accuser of the brethren who is there, perhaps on a daily basis, accusing any who would seek peace with God during this age. And he has even been permitted, with God's permission and with God's guidance actually, to break the church into many, many pieces and disturb the peace, however much it was that we had, and make warfare and division and splitting and all of those problems occur. Now, Satan may have done the dirty work, but if you read the book of Lamentations, you find, among other places in the Bible, of course, that God was behind it because of some serious problems within the church that were of and by themselves disturbing the peace within the church. So God said, all right, sick him, and turn Satan loose on us, and you know what happened in the ensuing 25 years and more now, within the church of God, which should be a place of peace. I'm going to refer you back to uh, to Isaiah 9 for a moment, and pick up one of the titles of Christ back here, Isaiah 9, actually several, but one I want to 
uh, focus in on. Let's begin in verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. He will bear it, he will carry it, like you would carry a burden on your shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now when Christ came to this earth, his purpose was to reestablish peace on earth and in the universe. It's a process that was instituted there, and Satan tried to derail it right away. So he had Herod kill all the boy babies, tried to kill Christ before he ever had a chance to do anything. And then when Christ was mature as a man, there was the 40 days of fasting, and then the test, the trial, the attack, really, by Satan to try to destroy the attitude, the lack of sin, the humanity, with God working through Christ that had been established. So he tried to take him down, and through causing him to sin, cause him to die, and the plan of God to reestablish peace in the universe would be thwarted. Well, that was Satan's purpose. He did not want peace restored because he had created a world of confusion and sin and misery that he is not willing to give up. He is not willing or able to repent of and change his attitude. It is something that is so deeply ingrained in his lack of character to this point that he is not about to give up his attitudes toward the Father, or the Son, or toward you and me. That's where we are. Now, Christ won that battle, and as a result, has the authority, and will be given the power to fulfill all these offices and names that are given him here in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 including the Prince of Peace. So he is going to bring peace to this earth. We all understand that. We understand that the millennium is a picture of a time when there will be a thousand years of peace. But meantime, we still have problems, do we not? Now I want to go to Philippians 4 and continue this thought a little bit because there's a very compelling verse down here in the context, but I want to pick up the whole context of it. So maybe we get a feeling for what Paul is trying to get across to these Philippians. They were a church of God in the early New Testament, uh, who people who were striving to obey God, to attain righteousness, to fulfill the purposes of God. And yet they themselves had difficulties and problems and had not yet attained peace even within the church. And if you read all the epistles of Paul, uh, each one he addressed had difficulties and problems. So even Christ himself, in addressing the apostles-to-be, uh, saw problems and difficulties there that needed a solution. So wherever you go, you will find the circumstance, and today is no different. Now, in verse 21 of chapter 3 here in Philippians, he's talking about Christ. He says, "...who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself." So he is going to be given all power and majesty and glory and be able to subdue everything to himself. And we know that includes chaining Satan for a thousand years when Christ returns at the beginning of the millennium and subduing him in that fashion so that he cannot disturb the peace any further until that thousand years is over. 
And what he does then, we understand as well, he comes out and disturbs the peace again for a very short while. So maintaining peace in the universe has been a major project for a long, long time, and it will finally be achieved through the Prince of Peace. So he says, since Christ is able to subdue all things to himself, chapter 4, therefore, or as a result of that, or as a result of what's coming, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, Paul considered these people at Philippi, among other congregations, to be a joy to himself in that there were so few people on earth who were willing to serve and follow God and even make an attempt at true righteousness. So that created joy within Paul that he saw people trying to do just that. And in a sense, it was a crown to him because it was the result of God working through him that those people had come to see and understand and to begin to truly seek God. So, as a man, he had a part in it, and certainly his crown ultimately in the kingdom of God will be as re- partly as a result of the work that he did for God and the people's sake. So, it is a, both, was both a joy and a crown of sorts as a human, but certainly a crown in the future, that he was able to be a servant of God. He said, so stand fast in the eternal, my dearly beloved. He that endures to the end, Christ says there in Matthew 24. So he says, stand fast. He told the Hebrews, don't shrink back, but press forward to the high mark of the calling of Christ. Same advice given here. Stand fast. Do not be deterred. Do not be sidetracked. Now, he mentions names. I beseech Yodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the eternal. So, obviously, they were not of the same mind. And writing to this Philippian church, there were a couple of people, at least by name, that he felt compelled to mention that they were causing some kind of difficulty and disturbing the peace, if you will, of the church in Philippi. So he named names, and he didn't do it in such a way as to demean them. He said, I beseech you that they be of the same mind, that they help those two individuals and others, to be what they ought to be. So, there were problems there of one type or another. He doesn't go into detail at all, but I'm sure that the people in Philippi had a pretty good idea of what he was talking about. Okay? And I entreat you also, true yoke fellow, well, he lets them know that not only he, but they are yoke fellows working together, pulling toward the kingdom of God and toward righteousness. Help those women which labored with me in the gospel. Uh, there were women there, once they were over 60, uh, who were allowed to travel with Paul and his entourage and to be a help, uh, perhaps with the physical service and so on and food and whatever, that was needed to keep the work moving forward. With Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. So he's addressing the church. There were problems within the church, but even these people he named who were problematic in some way or another were probably also written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So those who are part of the body of Christ are going to have problems with their members, (laughs) their fingers, their toes, their legs, their head, whatever, Uh, we will have problems, just as they did back then, and we need to work together as fellow laborers to come to have the same mind. And he says in verse 4, Rejoice in the eternal always. And again I say, rejoice. Now he's saying there are difficulties there, but don't let that deter you. Rejoice. And I mean that, rejoice in the eternal So no matter what trials, tribulations, 
frustrations, difficulties we might have as a body of Christ, we are to raise our thinking, our emotions, and our mentality above the difficulties and rejoice in the eternal. Remember, one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. So, we need to find joy in spite of whatever difficulties we might be experiencing. Then he says in verse 5, Let your moderation be known to all men. The eternal is at hand. He's saying Christ's return is imminent. Well, of course, we understand that Christ let all the apostles labor under the idea that he was returning quite soon within their lifetimes until later in their lives they began to realize, no, this is still a good way off. Now we have come a good way off, and it is imminent now in a way that it wasn't then. But these words were to be eternal words, see? So they're written in such a way that they would always be a motivation that Christ's return could be soon. And for you or me, any one of us, it could be very soon if we happen to die at any moment, which any of us could. But where it says moderation there is not really a good translation. The Greek word means seemly or suitable, and secondarily equitable, fair, mild, or gentle. So it's talking about their attitude and approach. It's not talking about moderation in food or drink or other aspects of life in the way that we might have understood it in the past when we read it. I thought that this morning, and then I looked at the context, and it says that doesn't quite fit. Uh, what does that word mean? So I looked it up in 26 Translations, a book that gives uh, up to 26 different translations uh, of any particular scripture. Very interesting reference book. But there, some of the translations of this particular word and passage were forbearance. Let your forbearance be known to all men. Forbearance, patience, one of the fruits of the Spirit. Or your consideration is another translation. Another translated it humility. Another reasonableness. Basically all synonyms. And the last one, the bigger word, magnanimity. Your giving, your hospitality, your attitude of forgiveness and love and kindness and gentleness and so on is what magnanimity means. So what he's saying here, let your godly attitude then be known to all men. That when someone thinks of you, they think there's someone with a godly attitude. That's kind of scary, is it not? When people think of you, do they think godliness? When they think of me, let's don't even go there. Is there room for improvement? Is our godliness and the attitudes of God, the fruit of the Spirit, that these synonyms of the word moderation uh, entail, is that what people think of us when they think of us. If not, we have some work to do, and perhaps they also have some work to do, because we're not either to take offense nor give offense. Either way, offense is out the door. Forget it. No, no offense, taken or given. It's a two-sided coin. And then in verse 6, he says, be careful, another word which is not really good in modern English, uh, even as Christ said, don't be anxious about this or that or the other thing. Be anxious for nothing. Don't spend your time worrying about things, whatever they might be in life. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, so our attitude should be one of the fruit of the Spirit and 
in an attitude of prayer and supplication to God. As he put it in another place, be instant in prayer. With thanksgiving. So our prayers to God need to have supplication, that is, to ask about things that are needed, especially in the spiritual realm, not just a new dress or a pair of pants, but the spiritual needs that we have. Not that we can't pray for the physical a little now and then. I even prayed for a goat this week, which is unusual. But with thanksgiving, with a thankful attitude, not a whiny attitude, but a thankful attitude is the way we approach God in attitude. Let your requests be known to God. So even as we approach prayer, we need to adjust our attitudes to be sure we are approaching Him in a fashion that would be pleasing to Him. Verse 7 is the verse I'm working toward. And the peace of God. Now they obviously did not have complete peace in the church at Philippi. Not only from what he said here about certain individuals, but throughout the book that is obvious. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Emmanuel. The peace of God is beyond our grasp. It's beyond our comprehension. We have lived in a contentious world. We've lived in contentious families. We've lived in a contentious church. We have seen disturbance of the peace throughout our lives, here, there, and everywhere, have we not? We even have conflicts in our own minds of wanting to do that which we should do and doing the things which we should not do, as Paul put it. So everywhere you look, there's contention, and I think that's why he wrote it that way, that the peace of God, which is beyond or passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ. So we are looking for peace. And that's why I entitle this, Finding Righteousness and the Peace of God. In a world, in a universe that is unpeaceful, that is disturbed and full of war and conflict, we are to seek peace. There's a scripture that says that as well. So then, to sum up this thought, he says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, and that means reality, those things which are right and good, it doesn't mean that you found the dirt on somebody and it's true gossip or dirt, therefore you have license here to repeat it. I have actually heard this particular verse used in that context, actually probably several times over the decades, where it's, well, it's true, and therefore I can repeat it. Well, that's an ungodly attitude in the first place, and it doesn't fit with what we said about the word moderation in verse 5, kindness, kindness, gentleness, and so on. So, that isn't what true means here. Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just and pure and lovely, of good report. Now, the very fact it says of good report would be a contradiction of true if you think, well, I know this is true and it's a sin, therefore I can repeat it. No, he says those things which are of good report. So reporting the truth, even though it may be evil, is not included here in what Paul is trying to get across. That would be such an anomaly among all these other things he's saying, uh, it wouldn't fit at all. But people jerk one word out somewhere and decide they'll make their attitude or their doctrine or justify what they want to say uh, by that one word. You can't take things out of context and make them mean what you want them to mean or to justify what you want to say or do. If there be any virtue, now here's the emphasis, if there be any good or virtue or godliness, and if there be any praise, think on these things. 
So that also decries the idea that if it's true, I can say it. No. That isn't what true means there, and the whole context gives the lie to that. So he's saying the good things, if you can find anything good, any virtue, any praise, anything good to say, say that. Okay? Now we, as humans, have a problem with that, in that human nature likes to repeat evil, it likes to think evil, it likes to ascribe evil motives to people. We grew up in a world that is full of all kinds of chicanery and sin and dishonesty and false motives, selfish motives, and it has affected our thinking. And it grew in good soil because the human mind is deceitful and desperately wicked and carnal by nature and likes to, by nature, go to that which is evil or bad or is a put down to someone or anyone else. It is the nature of Satan, by and large, because he came to have that nature. So he's saying here that if you're to have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, you're going to have to think the way he describes in verse 6. You have to button your lips when you start to say something negative or evil or degrading about someone and either shut up and not say anything or find some virtue or some praise you can substitute instead. And that will help create peace instead of dissension and frustration and anger and the parting of even chief friends. This is something God says to do. Now, we all want peace, right? But we want everybody to be peaceful to me. We want everybody to treat me well. While we are willing to treat others just the opposite. That's human nature. We are yet carnal when we allow ourselves to think that way. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard, and he uses himself as an example, and seen in me do, the things that Paul was striving to do, working at, and trying to set an example in, sometimes failing, but he was human. But he said, these things that you've learned and heard, do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Now, God can be many different ways. He can be the God of war. Can he not? Christ is coming back with his vesture dipped in blood, with a sword in his hand, to put down rebellion and disturbance of the peace on this earth. So he can be a god of war. The war god, if you will. Or he can be the god of peace. Now, Paul even referred to himself that way, as we saw recently in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, shall I come to you with peace or in great anger? He says, it all depends on your attitude. If you deal with this problem properly, I'll come in peace. If you don't, I'll come with sharpness. Christ tells us, if you will do this, I will come and be the God of peace. If not, I'm going to be the God of war. So our attitude has a great deal in determining what God does with us. Let's make sure we're dealing with the God of peace. The church overall, since Herbert Armstrong died, and even somewhat before, has not been dealing with the God of peace. We have been dealing with the God of scattering, the God of splintering, the God of trial, trouble, and tribulation, because... 
we needed it. He chastens every son whom he loves. And he has been chastening the church in quite an outright manner for quite some time now. We'll get to that a little later on. We've discussed it many times. So he's not the God of peace right now for you and me. One of his titles is Prince of Peace. But one of his titles is King of Kings and Lord of Lords with a sword. And how he approaches you and me is going to be based on verse 8 of Philippians 4. How well we comply with what Paul is telling us here. But we have a choice. And we have a very great part in how God has been and will be dealing with us. Now, to this point in the church, we've seen scattering. We have seen people dying of the spiritual famine and pestilence of the sword and of captivity or going back into the world that they came out of. It's a spiritual warfare that we have been fighting and losing. So the reason I'm giving this sermon and probably another one or two or whatever afterward is to perhaps help us understand better what we need to do in order for peace to be restored. Now, we've gone over many scriptures in Haggai and Zechariah and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and other places to show that God has a solution to the current problems within the church. Ten percent will return to Him and be blessed and be an example to the rest of the world, a light on the hill, but 90% are going to go into tribulation, and as Zechariah says, about 30% will repent there. So that is what is coming in the future, because most people are not going to listen to Philippians 4, verse 8, and similar scriptures. And if we still have any warfare and fighting and dissension and lack of unity among ourselves, then somehow we are failing here. If God is not the God of peace among us, then we still have some work to do. And I want to not get on our necks about it. I want to help us comprehend and understand what it is that we need to do to reverse the situation so that we can come to understand the peace of God which surpasses our present grasp and the God of peace to be with us. There's where we need to do, what we need to do. There's where we need to be. But I rejoice, verse 10, in the eternal greatly, that now at the last your care of me has flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. Now, their trust and confidence, apparently, in Paul had subsided. It was not what it had been, but... Toward the last of his ministry, uh, it was improving, and he comments on that. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I wonder how much we have learned to be content in whatever situation we find ourselves in. Israel had trouble with that. They murmured at every turn. They complained and griped about everything that went on. And so did these people, and so have we in the end-time church of God. So we have to learn that whatever trials, troubles, chastening, be content with it. He said he had learned to abound and to be abased both. And even when he was being abased, whether it be shipwreck, stoning, or snake bite, or whatever, he had learned to be content because he knew God was doing with him whatever it was that he and the church needed. So, understanding God and not questioning God had become part of his thinking and his emotional makeup. He had learned to be content, to accept whatever God was doing. 
But whatever God is doing with you and me today is precisely what we need to fulfill His purposes. Do you believe that? Do you have faith sufficient in God and trust in God that whatever He is doing is best for you right now? Whether you got your toe in a hole or your tail in a crack or whatever might be the problem. God is doing for the church as a whole, miserable mess that it is, what it needs right now to get it where it needs to be. So that he can become, again, the God of peace, which is his purpose and goal, not only now, but in the kingdom of God and forever through the universe. That's what he's up to. And we have to submit to the attitudes that will produce that. He's called on you and me ahead of time. Our salvation is now. Now is the day of salvation for us. So he's called us to make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Sermon on the Mount. One of his main points. Blessed are the peacemakers. Not the disturbers of the peace. Find a way to make peace. There has to be a way. Righteousness will create peace and reconciliation and closeness and unity and harmony. If you're doing those things which disturb the peace, it will not be achieved. Well, he says that in the next verse. I guess I got ahead of myself. Verse 12. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. He said you have to be versatile enough to accept either condition and to be content within it. But God knows what he's doing with you. And learn from whatever circumstance. If you're in blessing, health, and good times, learn from that and don't become lax. And if you're in trial and trouble, get on your knees and supplicate the eternal that you change whatever needs change so that the trials and troubles can be lifted. And we're even told that we're to rejoice in tribulation, are we not? Rejoice when things get tough. Hallelujah. <laughs> Rejoice. Now, there's a tough one for you. When things are going bad, we'd rather whine and complain and murmur and gripe and whine at God to fix it. It's not His job to fix it, brethren. It's our job to get in line with Him so that it is then automatically fixed. Now, He's there to help us, don't get me wrong. He's there to give His Spirit, to give His succor, His help, His strength, if we call upon Him. But He doesn't need to make any changes. We do. It's not His fault we are the way we are. It's Satan's, society, and self's fault that we are what we are. So don't ever let yourself... Begin to think God isn't fair. Oh, yes, He is. We're the ones that create our own problems for the most part by allowing Satan or society's influence and our carnal nature to have its way. <coughs> and that is the very thought that He says next, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. So the recognition that the problem is ours that the need is ours, the attitude adjustment has to be ours, and that we will have difficulty attaining those things without help. So that's why we go to Him and get the help we need and that we can do all things. Can we fulfill verse 8? 
and think on those things that are lovely and good and pure and of good report and of any virtue and any praise? Can we do that? No. Not a chance on our own. Human nature is too powerful. If we are able to stop negativity and to find any virtue or any praise or any good report and say that, we will have been on our knees and we will have been asking God for more of His Spirit, more of His power, more of His mind, so that that transition can be accomplished. You're not going to do it on your own. You can only do it through Christ which strengthens you. And you can do it through Him. We can achieve peace if we go about it right. It can be done. Now let's go to John 8. I wanted there to establish that there has not always been peace in the universe in the world, or in the church, but there is a way through Christ to achieve it. And it's something that is beyond our comprehension. Now let's get a little bit into the situation of what we have to do, or what procedure is necessary in order to accomplish. Let's go to John 8 and verse 32. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You probably are very familiar with this verse. Now, he's talking here to the leaders of the Jews who thought they had the truth, nothing but the truth. And they looked to their father Abraham, who had truth. But they had this religious appearance, and yet they were hypocrites. They didn't do the things that they knew to do. They didn't follow the law that Abraham followed, did they? So he called them snakes and hypocrites, whited walls, the inside of sepulchers full of dead men's bones. Those are not very pretty pictures, really. But his spiritual assessment of them was that, maggot food. And yet they thought they were quite righteous, did they not? He goes on to explain, I won't go through the whole chapter, but he goes on to explain to them that if they knew the real truth and who he was and what he was trying to accomplish, they could be made free. From what? Sin and death. Because they were headed toward the lake of fire. And he's trying to let them know that there is a way that you don't have to go there. The way you're headed is toward death eternally. And even let them know they were on the very edge of that because they understood a certain amount and yet weren't following it. So they were in danger. And he had brought truth, but they were ignoring it. And he says, you shall know the truth, and that will make you free. Let's go to John 17, a few pages over in verse 17. Here's, let's see what truth is. Now, he gave them a certain amount of truth there, but here he puts it in a a sentence. He's speaking of his disciples, and he says, Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. So the Word of God is truth. Now, he was speaking then of the Word of God as written in the Old Testament. That's truth. He was also, I'm sure, speaking of his own words, which would be recorded by John and others, which would also be an addition to the truth that was already available. And I'm sure he even had in mind what Paul and others would write later, which would be canonized as part of Scripture, because even in 2 Timothy, he tells us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for four things that he says there. So, the word given here, then, is truth. 
So, if we are to be set free from sin and death, from misery and frustration, the answers to that are going to be found in this book. You won't find them in a world psychology course. You won't find them in a psychiatric office. You won't find them in a seminary. You won't find them anywhere but in this book. This is the one that will make us free from sin and death. 1 John 3, 4 gives us a definition of what sin is. Now, you and I understand that, but the world out there, they don't know what sin is. It's a moral code of which, whatever they decide. But he says there that sin is the transgression of the law. He says in Romans 3.23, these are three good ones to write down and remember as memory verses. Sin is the transgression of the law, 1 John 3.4. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Chapter 6 of Romans, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. We've all broken the law every one of us, and the wages of that breaking of the law is death. Now, we have to be redeemed from that, reconciled, sanctified, set aside, and saved from our sin that we have committed. And you know the process of repentance and baptism and continual asking for the sacrifice of Christ, which is continual, that our sins be forgiven and that we can be redeemed from this earth. So God's Word is the key. Now let's go to the book of Romans. Paul gives some pretty good insight here, especially in one verse that I'll point out. But let's go to Romans 1 and begin in verse 11. He's done his introduction and everything to the book here. And in verse 11 he says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, to the end you may be established. So he says, I want to see you, I want to talk to you, I want to give you information, understanding, that you might be established, and he's speaking spiritually here, they were already established physically, but he wanted them to be established in truth and in the possibility of salvation. Verse 12, that is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. So he wanted the faith that he had in God and his plan and purpose combined with the faith that they had come to have so that they might be all inspired, strengthened, and empowered through that faith. The just shall live by faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Now, we want to please God, do we not? because we want him to be the God of peace, or the Prince of Peace to us. So we want to please him. But we have to have faith in God. He's going to establish that, and this finding of righteousness and the peace of God is going to have faith as a very key ingredient. A very key ingredient. I'll not explain that further now, but you'll see that we have to live by faith daily. And if we don't have faith in God, our relationships with God personally and our relationships with each other will have difficulty and lead to failure and dysfunction. Without the faith mixed together, to bring comfort and help. Verse 13, Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come to you, but was kept from it, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. So he wanted to go to Rome and help them toward the kingdom of God. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. He'd learn from everybody. 
So much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. He wanted to know that he cared. He hadn't been able to get there, but he wanted them to learn what they needed to learn so that they could fulfill their purpose. Verse 15, so as much as it as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel at Rome. I read that. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The feelings, the understanding he had of God and the plan of God and the purpose and what needed to be done to accomplish salvation was so important to him that he wasn't in the least bit ashamed to say it, to preach it, to let it be known. And in spite of difficulties or opposition or the Roman army or people stoning him, it didn't matter. He was going to preach it. He wasn't going to hide as we did decades ago by saying, I'm a representative ambassador college, come out. We were so afraid of persecution, we didn't even want to admit we were the church of God. We were ambassadors for ambassador college. That's the way we were instructed to approach people who had heard the broadcast and read the plain truth and booklets. I'm here as a representative ambassador college. That makes me sick at my stomach almost, thinking back on it. Well, what Paul said, <laughs> but that's the approach we took for fear, out of fear in Pasadena. Fear of persecution. Now, we had read all those scriptures about persecution and trouble, and they'll put you to death thinking that you've got a service, and all those things is what brought that fear. Well, God tells us here in the end time, fear not. Fear me. Don't fear them. He even told the disciples, don't fear them that are able to destroy the body, but him that is able to destroy soul and body. And he's told us we are to stand up for the truth and to be a light on a hill, not hide behind Ambassador College or some such stupid thing. Well, he wasn't a bit ashamed, and he had to believe. And faith is required to truly believe. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. It's part of living. It's part of daily life that we move forward in faith. Not in trepidation. Not in fear. Not cowardly but in true trust and belief that if we do the things we are supposed to do, God will protect us and see us through to salvation. Now, he protected Stephen up to a point. But when Stephen gave that powerful sermon, and he was just a deacon, I say just, he was stoned to death. Next split second, he'll be in the kingdom of God. His lack of fear, his braveness, his power and face of adversity has him in the kingdom of God. He's ahead of us. <laughs> you know, he's ahead of us so far. But he lived by the faith and the power that came from God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men now notice this next statement. And unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Have we grasped that we can hold the truth, have the truth, understand the truth, and still live in unrighteousness? <coughs> no, it's true. The truth will make you free from sin and death. But it is more than just having the truth. There is something that must be done with it, or it will do you no good. In fact, truth, if not handled properly, will kill you. Not the hearers only, 
but the doers will receive the kingdom of God. So just having the truth is not enough. And we'll get to an indictment against the church and what we had become before this scattering occurred. And we will find that we were holding the truth in unrighteousness, a wrong type of righteousness, if you will, self-righteousness. And that didn't cut it with God. It just didn't cut it with God. And that's why we find ourselves where we are today. Now, he goes on to explain this. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. It should be self-evident, he is saying, that as you look around at the universe, at this wonderful earth that he created, and the beauty that is upon it, and the ecosystems that work together so beautifully, and the pleasantness and everything around it, has to indicate that somebody made it. Darwin pops up somewhere and said, this doesn't fit this, and therefore there is no God, and it must have been a Big Bang or, or slime crawling out of water. Where did the water come from? What created slime? Well, on and on, you can go back. It's, it's so obvious and should be to everyone that God, had to be a God, created something. I don't for a moment think that one night the speaker stand just crawled under the door and came over here and set itself up. Somebody took some screws and glue and wood and a saw <coughs> and made it. Now, we all understand that, do we not? But sometimes I think we minimize it or forget it because we don't see God all the time. We don't see God in everything. We're not as aware of God as we ought to be as we go through life so that we're thinking every moment, what should my life be? What should I be thinking? What should I be saying? Should I be saying this? Should I be saying something else? Oops, that doesn't fit Philippians 4.8. What's the matter with me? Change that. Put my lips in park. He says, if you look around at this world and don't believe there's a God, you're without excuse. He has given us this earth as proof that there is a living God. Because that when they knew God, in the past, when man understood and knew God, take Adam and Eve, they knew God, they walked with him in the garden, they met him. He talked to them. He instructed them. But what did they do? They turned their back and followed a different God. It's a boy, in a hurry they did. They glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Adam's and Eve's were. God gave Israel light, he gave them understanding. What did they do? Turn from God. Put him out of their mind. And went after the things that they wanted. <clears throat> this is something that has been the history of mankind. And professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. So, whatever level of comprehension of God people have had throughout the ages since Adam and Eve, they have almost immediately turned their back on. We've seen it in the church, where many have gone right back to Protestantism, or evangelical Protestantism, or back, I don't know whether they went back to Catholic Church or not, but or just gave up religion entirely. But they had known the truth, known some of the truth, had followed it. And then they began to drift the other direction and gave it up. So we've seen it ourselves. How many Sabbath services do you have to miss before you begin to drift? How long do you have to be out in the world apart from a congregation until you begin to drift? I've been in situations like that at times in my life where there was no church around or I wasn't allowed to go or whatever. 
And you begin to slip. It's hard to move forward and grow unless you get stimulation and help and reminding and all those things. You begin to drift away and you can lose it entirely. I've seen it happen to many people. I've seen it happening to me and I had to fix it over the years. So it's real easy for this to happen. Now we can, always talking about homosexuals here. Well, let's see what he says. Let's, let's see the progression or, or more correctly regression that occurs. When they didn't glorify him as God, the first thing you know, vanity and ego and imagination began to take over and then the heart began to lose the light that it had had and become dark and exchange the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. We see a nation today before us, <coughs> which was established <coughs> originally, understanding the holy days of God, uh, not following Christmas and Easter and all those pagan holidays, but actually in Rhode Island and through the colonies here and there, there were people who actually understood quite a bit of the truth of God. And now we have a nation which worships, for the most part, Mother Gaia. Evolution we've accepted. Worship the earth, which is what he says here. They'll quit worshiping God and worship birds and animals and creeping things. So that it has become, come to the point in our nation where you're better off to kill a person almost than to kill a dog or a frog or a spotted owl or whatever the selection of the day. Where mankind worships the earth and what's on it and mankind among the elites and the leaders needs to basically be wiped out except for a few servants for they who are above everybody else. That's what we have coming down. So because God is diminished and that which is around us is increased, God gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who exchanged the truth of God into a lie or the lie of Satan and worshiped and served the creation more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. (laughs) We have put ourselves ahead of God. So the whole world and this whole nation is concluded in idolatry today, where we put ourselves by far and away ahead of God and His ways. And that's why we are such an ungodly, sinful nation. Now, for this cause, he says, where this will ultimately lead is to God giving them up to vile affections, and even the women change the natural use into that which is against nature, and the men... So he's talking about homosexuality here, lesbianism, both directions. And he's saying the ultimate thing that will happen when you begin to reject God and begin to worship the earth and the things that are on the earth is eventually you're going to get so perverted that you don't even do natural sins anymore. But it becomes so utterly perverted And do we see a landslide landslide toward that in America today? It's everywhere. It's acceptable now. It's on every sitcom. Well, not every, but you know what I mean. Before long, God's going to have to issue an apology to Sodom and Gomorrah. If he doesn't do something about this soon. But he is. He will. God gave them over to a reprobate mind, into verse 28, to do those things which are unfitting, perverted. So when we begin to slide from God, it's a slide that doesn't stop until you get into total abasement, where you hit the bottom. And God has to do something about it, as in the days of Noah, or in the days of Lot, or in the days of Israel, where they all had to die in the desert, or today, where we are going to be diminished by billions down to apparently 100 million left for Christ to come and rule as Prince of Peace in the world tomorrow. That's what it's going to take. 
before mankind will begin to submit to God. Now, given that thought, here we are, submitting ourselves to God, are we not? That's what we're here for. That's our purpose. If there wasn't hope of a resurrection, we would be of all men most miserable because we fight and battle ourselves every second of every day to be godly and so often fail at it and bring misery and frustration and heartache upon ourselves and others around us because of the things we say and do and think. So it's a tough situation. Peace does not come automatically. Blessed are the peacemakers. You have to make it. It won't come any other way. Peace on earth can only come if everyone turns and serves God with all their heart, mind, body, and soul, or God wipes everyone out. There's no in-between. Partial peace is not peace. It's still disturbed. There has to be total peace. And it is going to take incredible measures to bring that about. Well, that's about it in time for today. But I wanted to introduce this by showing that there is truth. There is a God. Peace can be achieved. And we can live and happiness and glory with the Prince of Peace forevermore if we can become peacemakers, if we can find true righteousness and the peace of God. This is a big subject, and I, there's no way you could cover it in one day. So there's a lot more that can be said to help us grasp the implications of life and our course and our focus and perhaps to get down to some brass tacks about the things that we must really do in order to accomplish the, the, the goal of peace in the universe. That is God's ultimate goal as well, so it should be ours. And we are in a practice session, a boot camp, if you will, to learn to do that, to make peace, so that we can help Christ, when He returns, bring peace to the whole world. We need to know how, by the time He comes, or shortly thereafter, after our change and in our instruction during the honeymoon, we need to know how. We need to know how to go about it. And today's the practice ground. You and I have a need, a direction a charge, an instruction by God to bring peace and unity and closeness among ourselves. We're told to do that. So I hope that before I'm done with this subject, we can see better how to go about it, how better to achieve it, what we need to do, what we need to think, we got a glimpse in Philippians 4.8, but there's an awful lot more to the story, so we'll continue that hopefully next week.